everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing the Heroes of Olympus first book, The Lost Hero. How are you doing today, Jane? Uh, I'm doing all right. I, I got here from an evening shift at the call center. And I got I got to tell you, I am so fucking excited to be talking to someone that I like. Uh-huh. <laughs> You got you got some 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 bad old people who don't want to donate. I honestly not really just people who are like kind of boring and clearly don't want to talk to me. So it's not really unpleasant. It's not really a pleasant experience for either of us. While I have right. to try and manipulate them into giving the university money. Uh huh. God, <laughs> I don't envy you your position. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I only got to do it for like. A week and a bit more and then i get paid <laughs> hell yeah wait how are you do you get paid like bi-weekly uh monthly that's so fucked up it is fucked up they employ me for less than a month and it's still a month like <laughs> anyway how are you today jacqueline i'm okay i i am simply vibing yeah. uh been been also looking into the job sphere lately gotta gotta get that job gotta get that money gotta get housing for the next year sigma froggy uh, grind set sigma froggy grind set exactly but for now i am just hoping to uh maybe hear some of those delicious summaries you've written up for us i can provide those thank you on this the week of our titan's curse oh fuck is he still doing that uh-huh is it how it might how... actually it might might be battle of the labyrinth week maybe i wonder if he's gonna catch up to where we are at some point like, we'll get to Lost Hero Week. Maybe. Anyway. Chapter 5. Leo. Leo gets a tour around the camp from Will Solis from Apollo Cabin, who explains that the Hephaestus kid's head counselor can't do this because he's all laid up from a horrible death curse. During the tour, Leo has some sort of vision-slash-hallucination of his old babysitter, Kalida, who tried to kill him when he was a kid. Leo is impressed by how high-tech the Hephaestus Cabin is, but is then horrified when he meets the counselor, Jake Mason, who's in a full body cast from how bad the curse has fucked him up. He's assigned a pretty sweet bed in the cabin and is delighted until he's told that it's Beckendorf's old bed, and it seems like Beckendorf's death is what's caused the curse that's afflicting the cabin. Chapter 6 Leo Will Solace takes Leo to the camp's forge where he meets all the other Hephaestus kids, who are similarly despondent and beaten down. Their inventions are continually malfunctioning and blowing up in their faces, and worst of all, they've lost control of the bronze dragon that Beckendorf repaired in the Chimera Antarch in Demigod Files. It fucked up Jake Mason when he tried to repair it, so now the campers are trying to take it down. Leo objects to this, saying it's too cool to destroy, but Nyssa, one of the Hephaestus kids, says that it's too dangerous to be left alive. If Leo tried to get near it, it would roast him and stamp on the pool of grease that used to be his body. Leo is confused by this, as Hephaestus is the god of fire. Shouldn't they have some kind of resistance to that? Nyssa explains that that only really applies to Cyclopes, and only to Hephaestus kids in rare instances, like Thomas Fainor, who accidentally caused the Great Fire of London in 1666. And it's always dangerous when it does crop up. The campers believe that beating the dragon will prove that they're worthy of not being cursed anymore, and are committed to killing it. However, after they leave, Leo is on his own and uses a power he hasn't since he accidentally killed his mum with it several years ago, an ability to generate and resist fire. Chapter 7. Jason. Jason is taken to the big house and feels a weird sense of foreboding. 
Drew continues to flirt with him, but is clearly just hoping he's the kid of a powerful god so she can drum up some prestige by dating him. This also provides an excuse to re-explain the whole god DNA doesn't count thing with regards to dating. Before Drew can talk any more about the politics of demigod incest, Chiron rocks up, freaks out when he sees Jason and says he should be dead, before telling Drew to piss off and dragging Jason into the big house. The decor in the front room is very tacky, a farewell gift from Mr. D before he went back to Mount Olympus, including a living leopard head mounted on the wall. Jason explains everything to Chiron, who responds by asking him some questions in Latin. Jason immediately responds in fluent Latin, something no other demigod can do usually. Chiron vaguely laments that he was hoping for a quiet retirement after the trauma of the Titan War, but that it looks like things are about to get all fucked up again. He tells Jason that he swore on the River Styx not to talk about anything related to him, and that he's concerned because Jason's presence means that someone else violated a similar commitment. At this point, time freezes, and a hooded figure in a goatskin cloak appears, introducing herself as Jason's patron, and begging him to free her from a prison. She explains that Jason's father gifted him to her to placate her anger over something, and that it was she who wiped his memory. She restates the solstice time limit and then vanishes. Time resumes, but before Jason can get a handle on what just happened, Annabeth and Rachel arrive at the big house, lugging Piper's unconscious body between them. Chapter 8. Jason. Rachel confirms that whoever was speaking through her in Hera's cabin wasn't the Oracle. She was remotely hijacked by someone else, who told her what the hooded figure just told Jason. Chiron starts freaking out, but refuses to explain why. All he'll say is that it's not Kronos this time. At this point, Rachel puts together that Jason's patron, the hooded woman, is probably Hera. The goatskin cloak, however, is unique to her Roman aspect, Juno, a much more warlike version of Hera. Annabeth is all in on leaving Hera to rot, but Chiron vetoes that plan, explaining that she's the glue that holds a lot of the Olympians back from descending into infighting. Annabeth also puts together that Hera has been trapped for a month, the same amount of time that Olympus has been closed, which is probably why the gods have been closing ranks. Chiron chooses this moment to lock himself in his office, telling the kids that he can't help them with this. Annabeth takes matters into her own hands and drags Jason over to cabin 15, Hypnosis Cabin. The cabin is so cosy that Jason almost passes out while Annabeth retrieves Clovis, a child of Hypnos, who agrees to help them explore Jason's memory loss. He probes Jason's mind and finds that his memories haven't simply been repressed, they've been literally stolen out of his head. Probably by Hera, so the only way to get them back is to get them from her. So, Jacqueline, what do you think of these chapters? Gotta say, still liking it. Still liking it? Uh, not not much of a fan of the Leo stuff, if I'm being honest, but the Jason stuff's interesting. Uh, which do you want to cover first? Uh, I think we should probably cover the Leo chapters first. I just think they're kind of, they're less interesting overall, there's not as much to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, mostly, I'm honestly kind of into some of the Leo stuff going on here. Mostly the Hephaestus Cabin curse I really love. Yeah, the poor fuckers. Because, like, this is exactly the type of, like, comparatively low-stakes camp drama I want. Yeah, definitely. This is kind of like the... It's kind of the same petty camp politics that we always enjoy. It's like them having to deal with, oh, we lost control of a bronze dragon. Oh, we got cursed. It's not going to kill anyone, but it's really fucking annoying. Like, Cabin Curse, I feel like, is kind of a classic summer camp archetype. Oh, interesting. Or, I don't know, sort. Like, there's always, like, ooh, the bad cabin. There's the spooky cabin. There's the bunk bed you don't want to sleep in. Mm -hmm. This is drawing on a lot of those things that I don't think were present as... 
like there are present in some aspects, but like this is drawing on more of that camp mythology sort of stuff. That is like yeah. obviously this is a camp about mythology, but it had like the actual mythology of camps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, and so I, I do dig that, and I also just kind of like getting more of a peek into what Hephaestus Cabin is like. Yeah, definitely. I, they've got a very cool aesthetic going on. I love the forge. Oh it's yeah. Just like the, the Greek temple with like all the um, industrial shit like bolted to the side of it. Yeah, I think Leo describes it as like a, a steam locomotive mashed with the Parthenon. Yeah. I, I think that's awesome. It tells you a couple of things. It tells you Greek. It tells you technology. It tells you uh, don't give a fuck about aesthetics because they just kind of mashed them together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I enjoy all of this, like, all the antics inside the forge. Like, the bug zapper built, like, a centaur. Like, Mm -hmm. I especially just love the image of, like, these kids creating this amazing invention and then smashing it because it doesn't quite work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that seems like it would be pretty annoying to have to deal with repeatedly. Mm Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about them bringing in elements of more, like from the demigod was it the demigod diaries the demigod files yeah i thought it was very interesting because some stuff from that comes up in the jason chapters as well and i mean we're good we read that i wonder Uh if this would maybe be a little bit frustrating for someone who just read the mainline percy jackson books then moved on to this because like it's not that you wouldn't know what's happening but it is sometimes kind of frustrating if you're reading a series and it drops stuff from a spin-off into the plot as if you're supposed to know about it without kind of covering that in the stuff you've read. Like that happens occasionally with like the Stormlight Archive and it always annoys me when that happens. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a personal preference thing. Like it feels, uh-huh. it kind of does feel to me like, like if you do like, let's say like a time skip or something, mm-hmm. uh, then, and then you say like, oh, here's a little bit of stuff that happened and like provide examples. Then sometimes that'll annoy people. Sometimes that'll make it feel like, oh, this is like an organic world where stuff happened. And if you want to want to pursue like the extra, extra stories where that happened, you can, you can buy them or whatever, you know, you can read them, go to the library. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, w- I wonder if the lyric's going to try and like complete the trifecta and put in something about the, uh, the Clarice story from that collection. Oh, maybe. It could be cool. Yeah. And honestly, I, I do appreciate just, like, the Bronze Dragon stuff being here because I think it is, like, it was one of the more fun... Like, the story itself wasn't, like, the greatest, mm-hmm. but I just thought the idea of the Bronze Dragon was cool, and I like that yeah. it feels, like... It feels authentic to the world that has been built. Like, here was, a like, an outraged... Or, like, a... What's the word? Like, an out... A, a rampaging Bronze Dragon only the main players in that story are Silena and Beckendorf who both are <laughs> fucking dead and so it makes a lot of sense to me that now it's back rampaging Silena, Beckendorf and Percy who's fucking gone yeah yeah exactly and Annabeth but she's she's busy Annabeth is busy trying to find her errant boyfriend mm-hmm who well I, we have a few theories about where he might be but... <laughs> it's also like vaguely old yeller like, you can tell how much these kids have grown attached to the bronze dragon, so it's like, oh, we have to take him out behind the woodshed and put a <laughs> bullet in his head, so it's so sad. There is a tear in their eyes, they cock those shotguns. God. Uh, but I know you said that you weren't, like, the biggest fan of these chapters. Well, can you tell me a little bit more about your feelings on that? 
I think it's mostly just Leo so far. I think he is, like, by a wide margin, the least interesting of the three characters. Mm-hmm. And I, th- there's potential, definitely. Like, he's very annoying in these pages, but I very much get the feeling that that's going to be expanded later into, like, he is extremely traumatized and he's trying to deflect from having to deal with that, with making all these shitty jokes. So I I can see that going somewhere interesting, but for now, it's kind of, it kind of irks me. Yeah, I mean, we even get that explicitly laid out for us yeah, in, the, in these yeah. pages. Like, we know that, like, he, he says, he gives us kind of, like, his psychology, basically. <laughs> like, his plan A is to crack jokes and try to endear people to him. His plan B is to run away, and his plan C is to set shit on fire. He's a very self-aware 14-year-old, how old they are. How old are they? Like, we know that Annabeth is a bit older than Jason, mm-hmm. so... And it's only been like a year since the Titan War, so I guess they yeah. probably are somewhere around that age. Yeah, yeah. I, I Leo isn't my favorite so far, but I do agree that like it feels like something that could be expanded. And I like that Rick is putting him in like it's a pretty traditional like oppositional setting for him. Like he, here's the Joker kid; he's gonna go in the humorless cabin. <laughs> Listen, I I don't want to slam him too much. He's going through a lot, and he's a teenager. But also, I feel like half the reason people weren't laughing at the jokes he was cracking was that they were just bad jokes. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I have a black belt in Monster. Like, that's not funny. Like, that's just, it's, they're just not very funny. He reminds me kind of, of Marco. Did you ever read Animorphs? Nope. I've heard it's fucking uh, horrifying. Char- yeah, there's a character in Animorphs named Marco, and he is kind of his deal is kind of similar like he has a lot of like trauma around like his parents and stuff um and just like you know everything going on and he tends to cover that with like jokes Mm -hmm. uh and so that's that's kind of where my mind goes to immediately uh leo yeah leo's not my favorite so far i don't know i i i have like leo is responsible for a new conspiracy theory that is destroying my brain What's that? Uh, at one point, he refers to uh, what's his face, uh, Jake something. Uh, Jake Mason. Jake Mason. He refers to him as Doughboy. Oh God. He's fucking back. Oh God. <laughs> Wait. Oh, that's why he's in the full body cast. <laughs> that because From being stamped on by Carter. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> And that's why he can't be in the forges because he'll get baked. <laughs> oh my this god! Is, this is and my j- new conspiracy theory: is that his plan is to infiltrate Camp Halfblood and use them to destroy Brooklyn House. God, uh, listeners, if you don't understand what the fuck we're talking about, go back and listen <laughs> to the Kane Chronicles episodes and understand that that book series is truly just the saga of Doughboy. It's just Doughboy being done dirty. The Jake Mason is kind of a hilarious character here because. I feel like I shouldn't be laughing at him, but I'm definitely laughing at him. No, that's exactly the thing. It's, like, so hilariously dark. Like, you see this fucking guy. He's in the back. Like, he's in the... Like, you walk through the dark cabin. You're about to get to, like, the fucking mafia boss or whatever. And he's just splayed out in a full body cast with, like, a puffed up face. Like, a a cartoon character. It's so funny. He's, like, he smiles at one point and then grimaces because it hurts to smile. God. Oh, my God, you poor fucker. Yeah, I I love the little back and forth he has with Will also. 
Yeah, where Will's like complaining that the Hephaestus cabin gets all the cool shit to this guy in a full body cast because he got <laughs> annihilated by a dragon. <laughs> yeah, like they deserve to have gamer pads. <laughs> I also Jake just mentions that there are like underground tunnels that they've been excavating underneath cabin nine. Like, who put those tunnels there? They haven't accidentally crashed in the labyrinth again, have they? Oh god, they have. They must have. <laughs> oh wait, no wait. Didn't the labyrinth like get destroyed when Daedalus topped himself or whatever? It did. It did. Yeah, would be incredibly funny if they just broke back into it though. Uh huh. Yeah, Leo. <sighs> Leo is like all these kids. All these main characters are so fucked up. They're just fucked up little teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, because Jason is mysterious. Uh, Piper is like blackmailed, and. Yeah. Uh, Leo is haunted. Like Leo's thing is that he's haunted by his past. He's haunted by maybe killing his mom, mm-hmm. and he's also haunted by his like his his old auntie, his old auntie who like is just like some old woman who I guess used to babysit for him maybe, and who tried to kill him at one point. Definitely a monster. Definitely a monster or a god or something. Yeah. Uh, was it <laughs> Tia Kaida? Kalida, I think. Is it Kalita? I, I looked at the pronunciation. It said Kalita. Might be wrong. I don't know. I see. I see. I see. I see two L's. I assume it's a yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, you know what I really like in these chapters? What's that? Uh, I really like the way that the Titan War is addressed. I like that it's kind of like, it's never put into the narration what it was. It's like entirely addressed through like characters mentioning it. And it makes it feel so much more like a part of their backstory and like a historical event uh-huh. rather than getting a like previously on the Camp Half-Blood Chronicles. Yes. Like it makes it feel like its own separate big significant thing and I really like that. Agreed. And I I super enjoy that Leo is just like, yeah, I didn't know that there were huge natural disasters going on all across the country. I was running <laughs> away from my foster home. Yeah, fair enough. He had a lot going on at the time. It's so fucking funny that Leo is just like, Man, that guy must have been into everything around here about Percy. Like, that's so good. He sure was. <laughs> I feel like we we need to run into some characters soon who fucking hated Percy. We need to talk to Clarice. Because at the minute, everyone's hyping him up, and I want Clarice to be the one who's like, no, that guy was a fucking idiot. I mean, the the golden... My golden view of the future is that they... It, it, Percy just gets continually hyped up as this giant hero, this, like, great, complex figure of the camp who everyone loves <laughs> and then they meet him and he's just fucking like I don't know he's either he's either like stranded in the woods shitting and crying or else, <laughs> which is like pretty Percy mo- mood to me yeah I can uh, see that or else there was another theory that you presented Some uh, one of us presented the theory that um, what Percy has done is he's gone off on the sly to see Calypso because she's she's been uh-huh. exonerated. She's free now. So he could, in theory, just kind of go to that island and see her again. And it would make him the world's worst fucking scumbag, the lowest <laughs> dirt in the earth, lowest dirt of the earth. But it's so funny. It would be incredibly funny. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't have a lot more to say about Leo. I, I do like his kind of mysterious past. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not... I, I, I like that all three of these characters get kind of their own different mysterious thing going on. And him having, like, weird fire powers uh, is kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. 
also what do we think this is another instance of rick attributing a great like disaster of the world to to like a magician or a demigod (laughs) i i so i looked this up because this was not consistent with what i was taught in school about the great fire of london uh-huh. uh which is what what i found was that um thomas fainor uh was a french guy who admitted to starting the fire despite no evidence pointing to him doing that okay uh, and he got basically used as a scapegoat and killed over it that's so fucked up but he was like a french watchmaker and what i always got taught in school was that it was a baker who started the fire because he just left his oven on and then because victorian house not fucking hell Tudor houses were made basically out of um, wood and tar the entire fucking city <laughs> burned down uh-huh so I uh, mean that, that guy's name was like Thomas Farrier or something so it's possible that Rick's just gotten the wrong name it's very possible yeah it's it's just funny to me that like <laughs> Rick Riordan loves to do this he loves to, I, I mean, it's not, at the very least, not attributing a recent natural disaster that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh-huh. It is uh-huh, attributing yeah. something that happened centuries ago and had some decent knock-on effects because it did kind of stop the plague that was ravaging the city, mostly by killing everyone, but, you know. Uh-huh. Oh, you know. Do you know about the, like... Oh, never mind. Uh, wait, I... what? <laughs> Do you know about the Boston molasses disaster? I do not. I just really want this to get attributed to a demigod at some point. What is basically, it? Basically, um, in uh, in Boston, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh-huh. basically there was a big building that had a lot of molasses in it, and uh-huh. there the the temperatures were were low, uh, but then they got pretty high, and so the thermal expansion of the older molasses caused the tank to like burst open Mm -hmm. and suddenly molasses just like a thunderclap of molasses basically like drowned the entirety of boston i was about to say i want to i wanted to wait to make any kind of comment on this because i didn't know if this was going to go in the direction of oh it fucked up the factory and it was really funny or 18 people drowned because they can't swim in molasses Looks like twenty-one people died. Christ! I listen. I I think Rick is a pretty good writer. I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt in a lot of ways. Uh huh. But it's not going to shock me one bit if he attributes the atomic bombings to like a child of Ares or something. He's already like kind of implied it is the thing. <laughs> no, but I but like directly like one of them was in the plane. Yeah. No, I can I, see. I it. can see it happening. <laughs> He just—he's willing to write anything. <laughs> he will just say things is the problem. And speaking of people who are just saying things, let's talk. Let's talk Jason side of things. Let's talk about Jason. Let's talk about that shifty fuck Chiron. Yeah, Chiron. Chiron. Okay, so with 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 Percy Jackson, with our with our good friend Percy Jackson, Chiron was a nurturing mentor largely. He was. Mm-hmm. He, he cared very much about Percy's well being. Uh, uh, and he he had a very specific relationship with him. He was he was you know Percy was his favorite student in a sense. Yes, yeah. just like Pierce Brosnan said in that first movie. 
with with Jason Chiron, the first thing that he says to him is like, "Oh, you should be dead," <laughs> which is so fucking fun because like Jason has just been like, "Oh, this idyllic summer camp, everything is so beautiful, but it feels like it hates me. Like I I feel so uncomfortable here. It sucks so bad." Uh, and it's just like their 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 dynamic immediately hits a hits a bit of a low. <laughs> It does, but it also, I feel like you can tell that Jason is relieved that someone else has noticed that something is wrong. Yeah. Like, he he's very willing to, like, open up to Chiron and talk to him and says that, oh, Chiron even seems to be kind of concerned about him. And he can kind of tell it's because he's had this creeping feeling of something not being right, and someone is validating that. Yeah, yeah, like... It's like, oh, both of us know that shit is fucked, and mm. Chiron is being, like, especially... Like, Chiron is no stranger to keeping secrets from children. Definitely. The, there is apparently some oath that not even Annabeth of all people knows about, and that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I do love that, like, J- Jason even points this out. Like, Chiron is not turning into a completely different character over this. He is still, like, acting like a courteous host. He's still trying to be very friendly. But, like, the the way the dialogue is tagged is, like, he orders Jason to come inside instead of, like, he invited. Yeah. It's just, it, you can tell there's, he's very subtly off, and he's, like, he's keeping a lid on it, but internally he's fucking panicking about something. Yeah, but I also love that he, like, he has Jason's number. Like, yeah. he knows what those tattoos mean. He immediately cottons on to Jason, like, that he's like, oh, he'll believe in the gods immediately. <laughs> he even does the old, like, speak in a different language trick. Chiron's, yeah, Chiron's slipping into that Latin and Jason not even realizing that he's doing the same thing is such a cool moment. It's so good. It's so good. Like, I think we've seen something like this before, maybe in, like, with Greek or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, Chiron did it to Percy with, like, some written Greek in Lightning Thief. I think so. Uh, but it's just so good to see that old trick return to under mm. a different framing. It's it, it really drives home the, like, oh, something is weird here. Something's strange and odd and fucked up. Although on the on the topic of like the way that Jason talks being like Roman, I do think it's very funny that there's like a very small blink and you'll miss it rowback here. Uh huh. Where um, J- Jason says like, "Oh, the you taught the Greek heroes like Heracles," uh-huh. and it's kind of acting as if the Greek kids haven't been calling him Hercules for the last five books. It's so funny. It's really <laughs> funny. I, I didn't notice that, but God, yeah, like. I guess he seems to have a more, like, divisive view on these things than the Greek kids do. Oh. Uh, Like, insofar as, like, he sees, he envisions some sort of divide there. Um, Whereas, like, I think that the, these the most of these kids at Camp Half-Blood would just be like, oh yeah, Hercules, like, from the movie. He'd be like, oh, like he's like, oh, the the Greek name versus the Roman name. Like Jason seems like he would have some conception of that. Yeah, he seems very insistent on calling things the the Roman version. Uh, one has to wonder what's going on there. Do you have any any guesses? My my current running theory on Jason is that like he was fobbed off to Juno like thousands of years ago during the Roman Empire. Okay. And he is like, like fucking, there's been taken out of cryo sleep and reactivated for this crisis. And my my th- my reason for thinking this is that um, 
when Clovis later, the kid of Hypnos, is talking about the values of the Roman Empire, uh, um, what's his face? Jason is very instinctively like, yeah, those are good things, you know, honor and discipline and blah, blah, blah. These, this is what made Rome last for so long. And that feels like some cultural values that were stamped into him that's kind of surviving even the mind wipe. That's a really cool idea. Because the, the Greek kids don't really give a fuck about Greek societies. They they don't think, oh yeah, the Athenian model of democracy was the best one, let's have slaves. None of no, them No, yeah, exactly. That. You're you're really right. It's I I'm interested to see where this goes. I think that's that's awesome. I, I hope that's true. Uh across like, my fingers. But I hope it's something like that at least. <laughs> We also get, like... Should we talk about Drew a little bit, too? Let's, let's talk about Drew. <laughs> the elephant in the room. The The problem with Drew is uh-huh. that things have been ramped up. She's no longer just, like, mean and nasty. She's also, like, a gold digger. She sure is. She sure is every single stereotype that we were like, oh, we're glad that Silena doesn't fall into this. I don't know we say that yeah. about her every time, but it keeps being true. She just feels so two-dimensional so far, and like every single extra dimension that's added onto her is like, wow, this isn't actually helping. <laughs> it's collapsing and continuing to be two-dimensional, even though you're putting up these very poorly constructed sticks. That's true. I do think it's the the godly DNA thing. It's still uh-huh. here. It's still a necessary thing that you have to say. Uh-huh. I do think the way that Drew explains it here unintentionally points out like an inconsistency with it that's just kind of weird. What's that? Where she's like, godly DNA doesn't count. You know, it doesn't matter who your human parent is, the godly DNA just doesn't count for shit. Also, you can't date anyone from your own cabin. Uh, it's like, no, I, yeah. under- I understand why that's there, but the godly yeah. DNA thing doesn't explain why you wouldn't do that. You need to Rick needs to acknowledge that that would just be kind of a fucked thing to do, but I don't know if he can say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't go into, like, well, the the practicalities of siblinghood <laughs> and what it means to be raised together and that kind of thing. It, 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 I mean, maybe you could... It would just be weird. It's, it's already a, weird. It's a kid's book. You are asking for people to come after you with pitchforks and torches if you dive into that stuff any more than just, here's something that sounds vaguely scientific. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I just, I really hope Drew something happens with Drew or she gets off screen. <laughs> Those are the no, because she's definitely going to be around for a while, right? Because she she pops up in um in Kane Chronicles at a point where Piper has clearly known her for a while. Was it was it Piper who was mates with Sadie? Or was that someone else? No, that was that was someone else. That was like ah. a little kid. Oh, okay. Who I think specifically said she was also maybe an Aphrodite cabin. Uh, I'm gonna look this up now. I don't remember. God, you are kidding me. The summary on the uh, Riot and Wiki of the Serpent Shadow completely skips over uh, the Camp Half-Blood cameo. It just doesn't mention it. Well, here, let me... I've got it right here. All right, cool. Okay, yeah, all it says is that Lacey had warned me about Drew the first day of school. Apparently, the two of them had gone to some summer camp together. Oh, okay, so it's Lacey, not Piper. I see. I don't think we met that character yet. I don't think so. Let's, let's, let's talk about... Let's talk... Let's talk the green mist. Different to the forget mist that makes people think they dated you. Uh-huh, let's, let's talk the, the ghost. The ghost of, of Juno. The ghost of Christmas shit. 
this is this is immediately interesting to me because I why did she choose to also contact Piper? Yeah, that because I would I would understand if she had also um, gotten in touch with Leo and it was a case of like okay these are the three heroes that she's chosen that's why they're our perspective characters. But it seems like there must be more rationale to it than that because Leo doesn't get in a message. No. So yeah, like, I I don't know. It makes it feel to me this kind of move makes it feel like it's positioning all of this into feeling like a trap of some sort, especially mm. with how what we know about like Piper kind of being like under somebody else's thumb right now. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know who that person is. And so it kind of makes it feel like what, like this is, this must be tying into that in some way. If, if she's the one who's contacted and not also Leo yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. It's, I mean, this is just begging to be some kind of big twist. That's what every mm-hmm. every prophecy that we get, anything that Rachel or the Oracle says, has a double meaning or a twist somewhere in it. Yeah, I'm. I'm really. I'm. I'm really glad that we are getting this to return to like a Hera plot, though. Mm-hmm. Because that's something that we kind of, we kind of liked the direction that went in the original PJO books. But it was never really resolved. Like, it was funny that um, Hera's idea of a curse was to just make cows poop in front of Annabeth in the middle of a horrible war. Like, that was a good example of how petty she was. But we never got anything wrapped up on, like, you know, Annabeth and Hera hashing that out. Yeah, exactly. Like, this feels like it's going to be... This feels like it's going to be the actual sort of, um, like, the resolution to that, and which kind of retroactively makes me less um, unsatisfied with how that wasn't really wrapped up in the first books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess well, one of the things about this is that it has the potential to make Battle of the Labyrinth slightly better. Uh-huh. Just because that was an element that was introduced in that book and then not really used later. You know, who else was introduced in that book was uh, Janus. Oops. Uh, the Greek, the sorry, the Roman god, with with two faces. Oh yeah, yeah. In a like a part of the labyrinth that was like specifically Roman um, decor as well. Yeah, and that's also the scene where Hera showed up to talk to them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it feels like things are little elements are bubbling back up in a way that I really like. Uh, also, wiping someone's memories is a very Hera feeling thing from of uh, for her to do. Yeah, it's very, like, soft power to do that to someone, and that definitely feels like the kind of thing that she would be into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it makes this feel very much like... I feel like so far this could probably stand on its own, but it is also playing with ideas that are left over from the last series in a way that makes it feel like a very interesting continuation. It's doing a good balancing act so far. Like, I think you could just pick this up and read it, but I don't think it would be as good. Yeah, definitely not. You you benefit a lot from knowing uh, a lot of the background stuff. Do we do we want to talk uh, Hypnos Cabin? We should talk Hypnos Cabin. Uh, sleepy. Very sleepy. I really like Hypnos Cabin. Same. It's like uh, I don't know if this is just me like retroactively ragging on the King Chronicles more because it I didn't like it. But I feel like this is the kind of like very atmospheric, um, very evocative writing that we didn't get a lot of in Kane Chronicles and was very common in Percy Jackson. Where it's like, oh, the the cabin was very warm. It smelled of fresh laundry. 
It's just like all those things you read it and you feel sleepy. Yeah, yeah. Like it it feels like there should be just like ASMR playing in the background. <laughs> really. Like, oh god, all the hypnosis kids would do ASMR these days. They well they would listen to a lot of ASMR. They would be too sleepy to actually do it themselves. <laughs> But I imagine, like, maybe their maybe their voice is just... I feel like if this was written today, like, somebody would point out, like, oh, when you're talking to a child of hypnosis, it sounds like they're just doing ASMR at you the entire time. <laughs> and you kind of get that feeling from Clovis, uh, who's a brand new character, who just kind of is here to deliver a lot of exposition, but is also kind of awesome. He's described as a sleepy baby cow, and that kind of makes me forgive a lot of the exposition. Completely agreed. <laughs> <laughs> like... It's like he seems like such a sweet boy. I just I like to I like to see him. It's very funny when he's like he's trying to explain what's happening and he keeps falling asleep and Annabeth has to keep like kicking him awake. It's so realistic to like damn I am this sleepy sometimes. This is relatable <laughs> to everyone. Clovis has got sleepy bitch disease. God, yeah. This is this is such a weirdly gendery feeling character to me, too. So <laughs> I don't know why. Just like No, I, I can see it. You you get it real ones will know uh, <laughs> i we we kind of already covered we can probably get into it a bit more but we've already covered sort of what clovis exposits here i really like the idea that like inside of dreams you can see beyond the gods material forms that they present as in the world and like mm-hmm. view more of their like liquid flowing essence i think that's great that's yeah it's very cool i guess it's like the closest you could ever get to seeing that because we've seen a couple of times if a god shows up in their true form you just fucking die yeah so i guess like maybe the hypnos kids are like uniquely privy to that sort of thing because they can see it through dreams and this ties back to what it was before about like the as they move through different cultures they change of course like they have to change because the ways that the different cultures and yeah will view them changes and the the difference being made um, between the Greek gods as they were and the Roman gods that they became is actually pretty interesting to me because it it does tie into what we were talking about this being like oh this feels like more of a like a gritty I, I can't think of a better word than grittier <laughs> but like that that leaning more towards that tone uh, and I think that like works really well like t- leaning leaning into those like warlike aspects of the Roman gods. Yeah, it's still a little less comical than the the people. And I think that that does match the way that the gods are being presented. Yeah, I mean, you got the Leo chapters for your your funny levity. (laughs) Well, attempts at any rate. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Hey, what the fuck ever happened to Titan Bob? Uh, I don't know. Who was that, Iapetus? Yeah, the the one that um, Percy dunked in the River Lethe. Or Leith, or however you pronounce it. He, I thought he was going to get wheeled out during Last Olympian, then he just wasn't. Yeah, he maybe he's still down there. <laughs> he's maybe just he's chilling with Percy right now. Oh, maybe. Actually, yeah, no, that that would make a lot of sense. It would explain why we're getting so much stuff from the Demigod Files reintroduced. Which which would kind of makes it feel even more like, oh, so you had to read that supplementary content, content I guess. But... A little bit. Eh, we don't know yet, I guess. We'll we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like I also like um that the hypnos cabin is um a, another good ex- a good subtle example of the fallout from the Titan War. 
Because obviously, this is cabin number 15. This wasn't one of the original 12. Mm-hmm. It's been built since then for Hypnos, even though he's not one of the Olympians. And I just like that we're getting to see some more of um, like new locations in the camp and also consequences of the story that we followed for five books previously. I, I like that we've got those consequences. Yeah, I'm glad it's not being walked. Like, obviously, obviously it could be interesting if like they got to camp and like oh yeah we're building those cabins like it's, it's slowly coming along like that could be interesting but it doesn't feel like it would deliver on the like where the stakes were and what the i guess reward of going through all that was i think you, you could do that story but that would be a story about the gods like breaking their promise and percy like unleashing hellfire over it. exactly like you could Percy starts a f- another fucking war with the gods. God, yeah. Which I'd be into. For sure, but that's not what this story is, I don't mm-hmm. think. Yeah, definitely not. It seems like the gods are still dickheads, but they seem to be mostly sticking to their words so far. Can I talk about Seymour? Seymour? Seymour who? Seymour Oops. is the, the leopard head. Oh, yeah. His second name is Asses, right? Probably. <laughs> I feel like that is in my heart. That is something that Mister D would name a leopard. Yeah. Speaking of asses, like okay, so there's this this. I don't know if you mentioned him in the summary, but there's just a talking leopard head that Mister D <laughs> left for everyone in, in his place, which is fucking hilarious. But Jason is like, "What happens after you feed that thing? Where does it go?" And Chiron just like very gravely is like, "That's not a question you want to ask." And like speaking of asses. Is there just, like, a pile of shit, like, on the other side of that wall? God. <laughs> you might be right. Also, another detail I love about the stuff that Mr. D left behind. Uh, Pac-Man arcade machine. Yes! Yes, that's so good! You know, there's, it's, like, a very small detail, but, like, in, I believe it was, it was The Last Olympian. Uh, in The Last Olympian, Percy had a conversation while Mr. D was playing Pac-Man. And I mean, that was also, that was even a reference to like, I think it's the first book where uh, Mr. D says that like the three greatest games that humans ever came up with were Gladiatorial Combat, Pinochle, and Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah. I So I really like that. I'm glad that just those like small, those small details are not to be left out here. It's, it's a nice thing for us as invested readers to see. It's also one of those things that just kind of shows like, yeah, Rick knows these characters and he cares about keeping them consistent. Definitely, definitely. Uh, do you have any more big points you want to cover? I think that the main thing that we're maybe struggling with a little bit, and I hope it'll be alleviated later, is that the Leo chapters especially are kind of, they're re-establishing Camp Half-Blood, especially for like a new reader. And that's stuff that like we wouldn't have a lot to say about because we were already across all that shit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I like, I actually will say this, I, I like that it is re-establishing Camp Half-Blood, but from a different perspective. Like, by and large... It skips over stuff that we as the Percy Jackson and the Olympians reader would already know mm-hmm. and not skipping over it, but it is a gliding through them in like a paragraph. And uh, it's, it's, it's detailing more of like, what does Camp Half-Blood look like for stuff that we don't already know, like the Festus mm-hmm. cabin. And so I, I do like that. Yeah, agreed. It's, it's, it doesn't just feel like he copy pasted Percy's tour from Lightning Thief and swapped out the names. Mm-hmm. Which is impressive, given uh, that one of the ones from last week was Annabeth doing the tour. 
God, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, there was one question I wanted to ask, just because it's something that stuck in my crawl. What would that be? Does okay? Does anyone say home dogs? Home dog. Yeah, Leo at one point says like, "Oh yeah, where's my home dogs? Like, wh- why aren't they giving me the tour?" It, I feel like this is uh huh. To me, that 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 phrase just feels it feels in the same vein as like lit, where nobody has ever actually used that. It just appeared fully formed in the brains of old people as something they think that children say. People have said lit, but I think this is a different. I think this is <laughs> this is the same situation as lit. This is like. This is like slang from AAVE that mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, has been turned into like a very specific, like, oh, this is what the young people say. Yeah. And, and then also like kind of put through an like old, old white guy, like mind <laughs> grinder. So it, it does become a sense like far removed from any situation where it would be deployed, which like also Leo is the kind of guy who is like, I, who will just say whatever, even if it doesn't feel appropriate, well, like that's... if it doesn't feel... Well, that's kind of where, where the the two options I see with this are Rick's old and he thinks this is what the youths say, or it's a deliberate thing of like, it's kind of weird for um, Leo to be saying it in this context because he's just kind of a weird little kid and he says whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's a little column A, little column B. Probably. Maybe Rick Ryden is the weird little kid who doesn't understand the context. It's very possible. Have we ever seen Rick Riordan before? Yes, we have. But have we ever actually seen Rick Riordan in the same room as uh, another adult? Are we sure that he's not actually a 12-year-old who just looks really old? <laughs> he's just... He's three people in a trench coat. Exactly. Oh, last thing. I swear to God. I've just okay. like little points. Um, Leo says of one of uh, the cabin mates, uh, she looked like she could go six rounds with Chuck Norris. Oh yeah, that's very uh, of its time. <laughs> Incredible, even for the time. I mean, I feel like this is already kind of like dated in 2011 or whatever. <laughs> like, and on one hand, Leo is absolutely the kid who would be making like Chuck Norris jokes <laughs> because he thinks it's so like, oh man, did you hear? You know, Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups; he pushes the world down. Like that. That is like Leo joke tier. But I feel like if you if you wanted to make it something dumb that Leo is saying to show how what how dumb the things he says are, he should say it out loud so that people can just kind of stare blankly at him. It being yeah. a narration makes me feel like it's supposed to just be like an observation that the reader should take at face value. Yeah, well, that's one thing is that I do like that. Um, like the narration isn't devoid of character perspective. Yeah, because we get like Jason's. Jason's discomfort largely comes through the narration. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I feel like this kind of acts similarly in that way. But I, I agree that he should, Leo should be chastised for his bad jokes. Uh, I just checked. Uh, the, the earliest Chuck Norris joke I can remember is Ultimate Showdown of Ultimate Destiny. Uh, that's that that's came, an old one. That came out in 2005, so six years before this book. So yeah, definitely dated even at the time. Yeah. Yeah, God. I do you did you ever get just those like email chains of like a hundred Chuck Norris jokes? I did not, and I feel very fortunate about that fact. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're you're on the internet later than I am. Yeah, it's it's true. So this makes sense. I missed the Chuck Norris email chains. I missed Homestuck. 
Well, we're, we're, we're catching up on all of it now, I guess. Fuck. <laughs> Speaking of Homestuck, do you want to wrap it up there? I think so. All right. Well, uh, if you want to reach the show, you can check us out on Twitter.com slash UnwiseGirls. There we've got links to our own socials, our Discord, our Twitter, and our Patreon. I meant email, not Twitter the second time I said it. Of course, <laughs> there's a link to our Twitter on our Twitter. If you want to support us, you can uh, leave us a five-star ring interview, uh, tell your friends about us, or go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls. There, you can support us on a variety of tiers. Uh, for a dollar a month, you get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. Uh, for three dollars a month, you get the Discord role of, what was it, ba- Friend of Bacchus? Yes. Uh, and all of our bonus content uh last uh, last week we did a bonus episode where we uh talked about uh some good midnight crew pages in homestuck uh i ragged on young justice and jacqueline said that it was okay actually i think i think i yelled about doctor who i i usually yell about doctor who being bad in these episodes it's fairly reliable if if you want to hear more about jane's job i think we talk about a little bit there too oh yeah (laughs) if you want to fucking e-stalk me then uh-huh. you have to give us three dollars a month, or five dollars a month, where you also get all the <laughs> bonus content, uh, as well as the Discord role of Venus is chosen, and uh, a thank you at the end of every episode. That was fucking smooth. Uh, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Oh, should we uh, credit our new introduction? Slash, are we supposed oh, yeah, to say that should... out loud? Uh. Sure, let's do it. Uh, our new uh, intro and outro music is uh, Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony uh, from OC Remix. Because fuck Kevin McLeod and fuck NFTs. Very true. <laughs> and as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye. Bye.